welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. All right, so here we are in Revelation 3, 7 through 13, um, starting with Ephesus. We went to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. Gabe, you did Sardis last week, is that right? Did Gabe do Sardis last week? Does anybody remember that? Was that two weeks ago? Maybe you did Thyatira, I did Sardis. Okay. And here we are, we're in Philadelphia. Not literally, thank God. Uh, we're in the book, we're in the letter to Philadelphia. <laughs> the Eagle fans cried in their heart. Um, <laughs> and then we'll be at Laodicea next week, wrapping up the seven letters here. And it's, this, this is my favorite book. This is my favorite letter to my favorite church. And I think the most misrepresented church in the seven letters to the seven churches, in my humble opinion. Um, and I think it's about our church, frankly. And it's our kind of church, let me say it that way, because it's about a universal church, but a universal church is being faithful to God and his word. Next week we'll hit Laodicea and then we'll just dive into all the crazy beasts coming out of the water, flames out of their nose, and I'll, I'll um, talk about what that means. You guys ready? Yes. Revelation chapter 3, you have your Bibles, verse 7, starting in verse 7. Uh, Luis, do we have a verse 7 over there? You know what? Actually, let's read, the, let's read the whole portion and then we'll go back to it, verse, starting verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews, but they are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, and I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, jumping right into it, and it starts um, to the angel of the church. Philadelphia. We've been through this, and so I'll make this part very brief. Revelation is mostly a symbolic book, so we're looking at symbolism. How do we interpret symbolism? This is a problem in the church because you can interpret symbolism a lot of ways, and often it gets interpreted wrongly. Often it gets interpreted wrongly by the charismatic church. It also gets interpreted wrongly, in my opinion, by the reformed church as well often, but that's neither here nor, nor there because we're not those guys totally. Um, but it's symbolic. And so when we read it, um, we read imagery into it. 
And when we look for the definition of that imagery, the first place we look is the book itself. It often defines its own terms, if one, right? The second place we look is the scripture itself. Are those actual terms defined in the scripture? Um, and then the third place we get is by piecing together scriptural concepts to give us a, a picture that's redemptive for the believer and not so redemptive for those who reject Christ and his way. And so, so let's jump right here to the angel of the church. I'm gonna, I haven't really done this yet, so I'm going to do it right here. Um, the angel is a messenger. That's the job of an angel, primarily messages. And Beale says that some people actually believe that this is to the pastor of the church. Cryptically, it meant the pastor because he's the messenger, the oracle of God. Scripture calls the pastor the oracle of God. He's representing the word of God for the people of God. That's what he's called to do. And he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so. This was never clearer to me than when I was in law school. And I used to get banger messages, and they'd be full of life and, and, and prof, prophetic imagery and like incredible things from the scripture pulsing. Um, and people would say, like, that's the best message I ever heard in my entire life. And I was like, it is, I know. Because it's like burning like fire in your bones. And then I went into law school, and I was so prideful going into law school with my ability to discern the scripture. I remember thinking, I'm just that good. I just am that good. That's me. That's, that's just me. That's just little Engelhart juice right there. And I went to law school, and I felt like the Lord said to me going in, I'm not going to actually show you anything from the scripture for a few years. You're going on the shelf. Study law. That's what you're here to do. Study hard. And these guys asked me to lead a men's Bible study and speak at it. And I remember opening my Bible. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to show them a thing or two about, you know, whatever thing I was into at the time, correcting the church of some, in some way. And I could, like, I opened the Bible and it was like reading the phone book. It was like reading, like, Dickens. It was like reading anything. The Holy Spirit had ordained me in a time and season of my life to bring a word to the people of God. And we forget that in church. We think we, it's just like, oh yeah, it's just a guy, he's talking about the Bible. That's not what the scripture represents to us. It says, if any man speaks before the people of God, let him speak as an oracle of God. Let, you know this is the voice of God for this time and this season. That's not common these days. Commonly it's like, well, did you go to, do you have your D-min? Do you have your D-whatever? Do you have your whatever? And I'm actually applying right now, I don't think anybody knows this, for my master's in theology because I don't have enough to do in my life. I'm really bored. I'm a bored guy. Just because I want to know more about the word of God. And hopefully it's a nine-year plan. So it's like a half a credit per semester. <laughs> nine years. <laughs> but I, I, I believe in the training, but I believe more importantly in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because you can John 3.16 it with the Holy Spirit and people will get convicted and saved and their hearts will be moved. And you can have double degrees, double degrees, and you can not move anyone's heart at all. And you can be full of dead men's bones and confused people, and they're farther from the kingdom of heaven than when they heard you the first time. So, to the angel of the church. So I want to say this, that it's like one of the reasons we honor, I honor voices of God in my life significantly, and their voice when they speak into my life, because I don't think it's just a random dude. Then I'm like, meh. Second of all, 
The second interpretation is like, there's an angel with us. And there's actually like the idea is like the churches have angels. And we don't talk about it because we're not Catholics, so we're not really into angels. We kind of forgot about them. You know, after the Reformation, we just kind of forgot angels existed. I was telling the kids in the car the other day, I was like, do you know that you have an angel? Solly and Leon and Goldie were in the car riding with me. And I was like, do you guys know that you actually have an angel? And they were like, I don't remember this scripture, Dad. <laughs> Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And the idea is twofold. One, that Christians have angels assigned to them. <laughs> Some people are looking at me like, what? Like, Jesus said this. Actual Jesus, God, said this. They're possessive angels. And that they interact with God and they send message on, on behalf of God and man and all kinds of stuff. We don't know everything they, we, they do because we see into the spirit realm as through a mirror dimly. Um, but we know that you don't despise a child because a child is, has a mago day. It's made in the image and likeness of God and actually has an angelic representative before God Almighty. And so do you. And you think you're all alone and you flip up your computer in the middle of the night. And I'm sorry if this is a little Catholic for you, but you type in the, the bad website and your angel's like, come on, dude. Like we think that's just in the miracle on, what's the, no, not that one. What's the other Christmas movie with the guy, Harold with the bells? What is his name? Boom. Wonderful life for the podcasters. It's a wonderful life. Angels are real. God assigns them to people and to churches and to regions, actually. Uh, Luke 1, 19, I am Gabriel, replied the angel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. That's their primary, primary job is, as a messenger. Acts 12, 15, this is the New Testament church. It says this, you are out of your mind, they told her. She thinks Peter's angel's there. He's supposed to be in prison. They're praying for Peter. Peter shows up at the front door. You are out of their mind, they told this gal. But when she kept insisting it was Peter, they said, it must be his angel. The New Testament church was in, aware of the angelic. They expected the angelic. You ever hear anybody these days in our Protestant churches being like, eh, it's probably an angel. No, never. But throughout the book of Revelation, we see activity with the angelic. Revelation is a prophetic book. And it's not just about the here and now, it's about this cosmic war and this cosmic plan that God is unfolding with all of heaven and all of the angels and everybody on the team. Like when you're just like going to uh, Trader Joe's to get some terrible tasting snacks, the angel is there, you know? It's not, you're not just in a materialistic world doing materialism stuff. God, you're in a plan where God's involved and there are angels and demons and it's real. The snacks are terrible there, aren't they? Gosh, who said no? You hippies. Church of Philadelphia is like cheese steaks, cheese cream, cream cheese. It's not called cheese cream. 
It's late, guys. It's hot. <laughs> it's the end of the day. Church of Philadelphia, angels. It says this, to the church, to the angel of the church. And I just want to say that we've said this in the past, I'm going to breeze through it, but the Catholic church is the universal church. It has local applications, local elders. How is the church practically run? What, how is it supposed to be run? I, I just want you to know, like, the, the, the internal function of the church, it's only approximately given in the Bible. I'll read you 1 Corinthians 14, 26. It's the best we can get to kind of approximation of what goes on inside of the service of a church. Um, it says, Paul says, what then, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn where everyone's going to sing together, a song of God, a promise of God, the declaration of who God is. Uh, every, uh, when you come together, everyone has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up of the church. Obviously, when we come together right now as a modern church, 2000 AD, it's not like I'm just like, anybody got a tongue? Now, I would be happy if we had public tongues and interpretation of tongues. I think most of us are just not brave enough in the Holy Spirit to do that, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, or more prophetic words, I'd be happy with that. Paul says don't let it be more than two or three or else it just turns into clown town. But let everything be done decently in order, and this, is, and this is why, let all things be done for the building up of the church. And so we have this order inside of how we do our church services. For that word, building up, is a Greek word. It has two roots, um, and it basically means the architectural building of the structure. And that when we come together, we know the church is not these walls and the fans and thank God for, where's Travis? Where's Travis who we love? Where are you, Travis? He brought the extra AC unit. Thank you, Travis. But it's for the building up of the saints. And so I think for a long time, the house of God, especially the attractional model church here in America has been like gathering wood and building nothing. They're just like, keep gathering supplies, more supplies over and over, but it's not building up the house of God. Just stockpiling the lumber. And it lays there and does nothing. It's lifeless. But Paul says in 1426 that the gathering, the coming together, is not for the stockpiling of wood, but the building up, the architectural structure of the house of God. And so we have ways we like to do things. We do communion one, one you know, every Sunday, kind of, at the 15-minute mark, right? We have all of these forms. But Paul doesn't say have communion at the 15-minute mark, does he? He doesn't say have a waiting on the Holy Spirit time at the 30-minute mark. It's just what, what we do. But we're doing these things that are here in 14, this is what the church does, for the building up of the saints. That's the primary aim. That's what the service is about. The primary aim is the building up of the house. Okay, um... There's flexibility in how you do that, but I like how we do it. It's cool. Okay, here's the next portion. The words of the Holy One, the true one. Now remember this, the revelation of Jesus, how he looks to each church is going to be about how the message that he reveals to them. So the interpretive lens by which we look at the Church of Philadelphia, the context that they are underneath is by Jesus, who's revealing himself in two ways, the Holy One and the true one. The Holy One, this is about specifically the divinity of Christ, him being God. This is about God in his power, in his omnipotence, and his control of the entire universe. Revelation 6.10, it says the same kind of phrasing. They cried out with a loud voice. Who are they? The saints who have been martyred. They're 
not happy right now. They cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge the earth and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible because it's so antithetical to our understanding of this heavenly life where we're all just nice all the time. Like there's still justice in heaven. There's still justice. God is still just. He's just eternally uh, God as the Holy One, Jesus as the Holy One of Israel, representative of his divinity. This term, Holy One, is used 30 times in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah will be our second interpretive lens for this portion of scripture. For the church of Philadelphia, there are, there's like, I can't even talk this, about them all. There's like a hundred cross-references between just these seven verses and the book of Isaiah. It's incredible, the exact same phrases here used in the book of Isaiah. Um, and, and also in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1.10. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Remember, holy means to be other, but also it means perfection. So there's two concepts here, to be other than anything else, because nothing else in the world is perfect, right? That's why we have a broken world. God is other, unlike anything else, but in his otherness, he's actually first fundamentally perfect. Um, and we as Christians are called to be perfect. It says in Matthew that we're called to be um, perfect as our father in heaven is perfect. Now, a lot of churches will say, well, that's just like hyperbole. You can never be perfect. So Jesus was just like, he might as well not have said that. I just think that's a stupid thing to say. Why didn't he not say it then? If he might as well have not said it, be holy. Like I am holy. We're first washed in the blood of lamb and we have imputed righteousness. God sees us as righteous before the father. And through that blessing and grace, we walk righteously before the father, right? So we do both things. Verse 24, Jesus being called the Holy One, um, math, excuse me, Mark 1, 24. A man with an unclean spirit cried out in the synagogue, said, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are. You are the Holy One of God. So even the demons, and here we're talking about revelations, demonic versus angelic forces, they recognize Jesus as God, the Holy One of Israel. The only one this is called in the Old Testament is who? Yahweh, God, right? Bad TikTok apologists don't know how to deal with this. They're like, Jesus, the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God. It does a lot of places. This is one of them. Uh, again, Luke 4.34, Simon Peter, excuse me, um, John 6, 69, Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Again, this is a reference to Yahweh, God and his divinity and his control. The second thing it calls him, the Holy One and the True One. And this is important because um, if Jesus is the true one, what is the connotation? That there are false ones, Right? There are false representations of Christ. And Philadelphia has learned to discern the difference between true and false representations of Jesus. And it's primarily about walking in holiness or walking in blatant sin. This is what the whole this is the whole interpretive lens for all of the rest of the verses. What is it about? What's the primary 
interpretive lens that we look through, Jesus is both the Holy One of God and he's true. The false ones come in and say you can behave however you want and you can do whatever you want. Don't worry about it. God's got your back. So Jesus is holy and true in the sense that he knows uh, who the false one is but also that both at that time and at this time, there are false representations of who he is. The other thing is like, you know, Jesus came as the savior of the world and Israel completely rejected him. They didn't think he was the true one. They believed that he was some false representation, some little, you know, corn husker side show act that was gonna dissipate shortly. They didn't recognize that he was the true son of God. The, 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 the um, primary religious body totally and absolutely rejected Christ, even though he was true. And so this is going to contract, contrast the synagogue of Satan. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west... So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will, will gather. Jesus represents his truth to his followers. Um, you know, just as a side comment, Luke 6.26 says, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. There's a number of pastors today. Andy Stanley's one of these guys who's like desperately on this train of being desperate for everyone to speak well of Christians. It's like, oh man, we just need to be nice to everyone. We can't offend anybody. We can't say anything that's hurtful. And if you do, then you're not even a Christian. You're just a mean guy. Jesus expressly says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That means you're not telling the truth. If you lie to everyone, they'll all speak well of you. That's how that works. If you tell everyone the truth, most people won't like it. <laughs> and there's a way to do it with grace and, and gentleness and not like mean and nasty and arrogant. But even if you do it with grace and gentleness, oftentimes it will be rejected and you will be rejected. And I was thinking like, what if you've been rejected from the system and it's exactly the plan of God for you? Your rejection is the plan of God for you because Jesus' rejection was the plan of God for him. Now, not rejecting because you're mean or because you're, you, you snot on people or because of immoral reasons, but rejection because of your testimony and your faithfulness to Jesus. That's the right kind of rejection. That's the rejection Jesus went through that proved he was the true one. Okay, so let's get into the fun, fun stuff here. Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Okay, so we're going to interpret what the key of David is. Okay, so there's not another key of David in Revelation, but there are other keys in Revelation. Um, and I'll, I'll read that scripture in a second. But in Isaiah 22, 20, there is specifically a key of David. Let's read that portion of scripture. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, Eliakim, that names means to be resurrected or the resurrected one. So it's a prophetic picture of Christ. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe. 
and I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Verse 20, this is 22, Isaiah 22, 22. This is like on all, every prophetic website, 2022, 22, 22. You'll see it on a painting with a lion somewhere. And it says this, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. This portion of scripture, Isaiah is talking about judgment of God that's coming upon the city of Jerusalem, specifically a guy named Shebna. Shebna means to be asleep or to be captive. So Shebna is a guy that's supposed to be leading the people of God, and he's either asleep at the wheel, asleep to the purposes of God, asleep to his calling, and because so, he's a captive to sin. That's the idea. And Shebna gets the city torn away from him, and the judgment of God falls upon him, and the rulership of the city of Jerusalem, God's city, passes from Shebna to Eliakim. And when the rulership passes to Eliakim... The authority of God goes with it, and the key of David gets placed upon his shoulders. At that time, when you were a magistrate or a, a high-ranking city official, you would have a key tied to your shoulder, and it meant that you had access to every door of the kingdom. And primarily, you had access to who gets in the city and who gets out of the city. The key of David is primarily who gets into the kingdom of God and who gets kicked out or gets blocked access from the kingdom of God. We have two separate groups of people, one who believes they're God's people, the synagogue of Satan, the Jews, the people who have rejected Christ. They think they have authority in the kingdom, but it's Jesus who has authority. And he says, these guys that are my people that have been rejected like me, that are faithful and that are true, they're the ones who the door is open to, and the door is shut to these other ones. When the charismatic people, they, they read this portion of scripture and they say that the key of David is like, what was the key? They, they do this. What was the key to David's life? Spending time with the sheep, maybe. Maybe it was killing giants. Maybe it was singing on the harp. And they're like, yeah, yeah, harp. Yeah, that one. And then they say, the key of David is intimacy with God. Kill David. <laughs> sorry if you don't know that. I'm sorry. That was beautiful. Thank you, Gabe. Jason Upton. Jason Upton and all of his cronies taught me for my whole life that the key of David was intimacy. The key of David is access to the kingdom of God. Now, guess what? In the kingdom of God, you get intimacy. <laughs> you get fellowship with God. He lives there. It's his kingdom. You get to know him. You get a lot of stuff inside of that kingdom. Primarily, the key of David is access to the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives access to his new Jerusalem, the new Israel, the church, and blocks access to the old Israel who have fallen asleep at the wheel, who have become bound by sin, who are slaves to sin, and he gives his church access to his kingdom. That's what it is primarily about. 
the key of David. In Revelation 1.18, it says this, Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. And there are these keys, so we look to these keys for our interpretation. And it says the keys to the one, the one who holds the keys to death and Hades, eternal destinations, not keys to, you know, oil from olives in Jerusalem so you can have more intimacy with God. And I like having encounters with God. I had an incredible encounter with God this week. My friends sent me this amazing song about the holiness of God, and I was listening to it, just felt the presence of God. It was awesome. But when they tell me that what gets placed upon the shoulder of Jesus is intimacy, then it doesn't matter if I'm walking in holiness or not as long as I feel intimate. And that's a lie. It's like my feelings are the arbiter of whether I'm in the kingdom or not. No, uh, Jesus is the arbiter and he has the key of David and he opens and closes the gates and he's the one that determines eternity for you. And he's the one that's holy and true. Very good, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not even kidding, like, because Gabe and I grew up with this music and this, these ideas from the late 90s, and the whole life I was thinking the key of David is intimacy, and that's going to give me authority with God. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. So Eliakim ruled over Israel uh, like Christ rules over the church. Eliakim had keys to the city like Christ has keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus continues, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. He's set before Philadelphia because they're walking in his righteousness. We're not talking about moral nitpicking. Oh my God, I went 36 into 35. We're not talking about that kind of nonsense, right? We're talking about following a holy God. And it says in verse eight, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you, Philadelphia, an open door to the kingdom of heaven that no one can shut. It's like, oh man, I really want to get intimacy so I can pray for a key of David so I can open a door in the spirit to enter it. Jesus has already opened the door with the key of David to the kingdom for you. Jesus, verse 8, Jesus is saying this, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. No one, not the synagogue of Satan, not the Jewish people that are persecuting you, not the Roman city. It, it, no one can shut this door that I've opened for you. He says this, Philadelphia, I know that you have little power and that you have kept my word and not denied my name. This is why I've heard this preach wrong over and over and over again. They go like this. Well, it's the city of Philadelphia, so it means brotherly love. Because we all know Philadelphia means love. So it must be about brotherly love. Oh man, that's why Jesus gives him such a, like a good job, buckaroo, because brotherly love. <laughs> and their interpretive lens is literally the word Philadelphia instead of what Jesus says. 
And he tells them why he's exhorting them and encouraging them. And he doesn't say it's because of your brotherly love. Because you found a third way where you can hug the whole world and squeeze until the gusher juice comes out of them. Think about God as like a giant gusher. I don't know why. It's not, he's not a gusher. I know that you have but little power, but yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Like, that's why they get encouraged, guys. Like, because they've held fast to the word of God and they have not denied Jesus. And they have little power. Beale says they're like a little scrappy little church. And the synagogue is big and powerful and they have the money and the lasers and the stuff. And Philadelphia is 40 people in an 85 degree room in New York City and it's hot and nobody's there. And he's like, but you guys have the gates of the kingdom of heaven wide open to you. And they think they're the people that have it all. I just love this. Um, You have kept my word and not denied my name. Um, Obviously, it's the testimony of, of, of Christ. But how is Christ representing himself in this letter? How is Christ representing himself? As the holy and true one. You have held fast to my testimony, who I've revealed myself to be to you. They are being persecuted by the Jewish synagogue. And and Jesus says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. You know, I went on the stage one time and uh, it was like, they were like, two million people are going to watch this video with Charlie Kirk and all these people. And I remember I was like just about to walk on the stage and I was about to say, you know, Carl Lentz is saying incredibly evil things that are heretical and horrible and wrong. And I was like, I'm like, God, I can't believe I'm going to call out this guy's name. I can't believe I'm going to say, and I'm going to like, and, and I remember strongly hearing the voice, my, uh, the, whole, the voice of the Holy Spirit in my heart saying, you're not being nearly harsh enough. This is what Jesus says about the Jewish people. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Oh, that's pretty mean, Jesus. I don't think we're supposed to ever be mean. Are you sure you meant to say synagogue of Satan? I don't think you meant that. I don't think you'd ever want to hurt a feeling like that. This is Jesus talking here. Those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie... Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So Beale says that when they say they're Jews, he's saying the symbolic language is that they're saying they are the true church, they're the true followers of God, but they're not. And them and their cronies and their money and their feeling like they're right, they will come and and bow down before you, Philadelphia, and they will learn that I loved you. Worship team. I actually believe that in different seasons of church, there are different synagogues of Satan. I don't, because I don't believe this church, this 
this book just applied to one tiny time in the history of the church. Or else then why would we have it? It applies time after time to generation after generation of people that are holding fast to the word of God and his testimony and people that are rejecting it. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. One of the things it said, Derek, was that in Philadelphia, it's like a very non-Christian city, and all throughout the, the scripture, an open door is an opportunity to evangelize. And it's one of the things that, that Jesus saw what they were doing, and he's saying, you're holding fast to me by walking through the open doors that I'm giving you. The testimony of Jesus doesn't just mean I'm a Christian. It also means repeating that testimony. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. That's why we have evangelism on Saturday nights that I encourage you to go to. Because uh, it's scary. And then you can build that habit of courage. That virtue of courage can be built inside of you. So you can learn how to do that and share that testimony. It doesn't come overnight. It's hard at first. But it's a muscle that gets built. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, and I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try and, uh, those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I just want to read these four promises. Jesus, first of all, doesn't say these guys are doing anything wrong at all. Even though they have little power, they're holding fast to his word and his testimony. And these are the promises he gives them. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. They were a church that felt like outsiders. And Jesus says, my promise to you is that you'll be a pillar right in the middle, holding the thing up. You who the Jews, the synagogue, Satan, everybody else said, no, you're not the guys. You will be a pillar in the house of God. You shall never go out of it. It goes from, from persecution to permanence in the house of God. And I will write on my name, the name of my God, the name of the city of God, and my own new name. And so to the one that had been, just like Jesus, rejected as not true, rejected as the false version, too rough and tumble maybe, Jesus says, I'm going to stamp my name on you so everyone knows you're mine. God, we thank you for the church of Philadelphia. God, we thank you for the faithful witness to the holy and true one. God, make us like that, God. God, thank you for giving us revelation as a prophetic message to the church. God, make us faithful witnesses. Even if we don't have all the power, even if we don't have all the stuff, make us faithful witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, church.